Hi, I'm Kathy Walker, teacher, feminist and parent, and this is Raise Her Up, a podcast from the GDST, the UK's leading family of girls' schools. With 19,000 students across 25 schools and the largest women's alumni network of its kind, we are experts in girls' education and everything that goes with it. Even as a teacher with over 20 years experience of working with young people and as a mum of two girls, I am still learning every day. I think we all are. In each episode, we'll welcome an expert guest who will address a different topic that, as modern parents, we are bound to encounter at some point. On this episode of Raise Her Up, I welcome clinical psychologist and author Dr Tara Porter. At this age, what we're going through is an evolutionary drive for teenagers to separate from their parents, to individuate, to start making their own lives. I sometimes say to parents, you know, you're the wallpaper on their life and they want you in the background and not too obtrusive, really. Dr. Porter has been working with young people for 25 years. She's here to share with us the insights and experience which she's documented in her recently published book, You Don't Understand Me, A Young Woman's Guide to Life. From the GDST, this is Raise Her Up, and this is Dr. Tara Porter. Hello, Tara. Thank you so much for being with us. Welcome. Hi, Kathy. Um, I'm so excited to speak to you. I think your book uh, is absolutely brilliant. Um, it's described by Catelyn Moran as a 21st century girl's survival guide. I completely agree. So I'd love to know how you came to write this book. You know, teenagers have long been seen as challenging by their parents. The teenage journey is fraught with hormones, mood changes, confusions, feeling fed up. That hasn't changed. So why are you writing it now? Can you give us an overview of the themes you cover too? Okay. I mean, I guess why I'm writing it now is this is when it came out of me, I guess. I've been working um, in my NHS work. I work in a CAMS eating disorder service and nine out of 10 of the young people we see in CAMS eating disorders are girls. So I've got a lot of experience with girls. And I guess over the years I've been doing it, you just begin to see the commonalities, the themes, the stories they tell that, you know, uh, resonate with things other young people have said. And and then, of course, I supervise and I manage people and I started to write it down. And, and this is this is the result, really, the book. Um, so some of the things I've written in my book are, were, were based on therapeutic letters that I'd written to my patients when sometimes when we have a tricky session when we're really wrestling with something difficult psychologically I might if I have time write it down to them afterwards to try and help them and me make sense of it and uh, so it's about parents and families it's about their friends it's about their feelings and there's a whole chapter as well on anxiety that gets a whole chapter of its own because it's such a common feeling amongst young women at the moment but trying to look at it from a young person's point of view, not from a parenting point of view. So it is interesting. It is unique in that it is addressed to the girls themselves. And when we had a chat before um, today, you told me an interesting thing about, about what happened when you pitched this book to potential publishers. Can you share that with us again? I, I was lucky enough to get an agent just as lockdown happened. Somebody 
friend of mine shared uh, my writing with a friend of theirs who's an agent and she signed me up. And then we pitched the idea to, oh, I don't know, 10 or 12 publishers. And lots of them were quite interested in in me, but they weren't really that interested in the book. They wanted me to write a book about four parents, you know, a parenting book. And I was curious about that because one of them, you know, set up a meeting with me and we had a chat and, you know, about three minutes into the conversation, it was clear that she wasn't interested in this project. She was interested in me writing a parenting book. And when you look up for parenting books, you know, there's thousands and thousands of them. And um, I was just curious why that is. Because people ask me, what would you recommend for my daughter to read? And I, I think the general theme is that, oh, teenagers don't buy books or teenagers don't read books, even worse. Um, so is there going to be a market for it? But luckily, we did find a couple of publishers who are interested and one of them has gone ahead. So... I'm very pleased with that. Teenagers uh, don't buy books. Teenagers might not read books. But one thing that teenagers definitely don't do is listen to their parents, I think. Um, you know, as, as parents, our kids are our everything. And we feel things that they go through really acutely as if they were happening to us. And we have that experience to share. But, you know, one of the frustrating things as a parent, I think, is that, you know, I want to impart what I've learned and they're just not interested. So I'd be really interested to know what they are saying in therapy about their parents um you know what what insights do you have into those relationships um i mean i think that's right it's a, the it's a perennial problem i bet i bet your parents would say the same thing about when you were a teenager kathy and i think every generation <laughs> of of parents we think but we're so cool we're not like our parents yeah. you know oh completely have you seen me <laughs> <laughs> um but i think at this age what we're going through is an evolutionary drive for teenagers to separate from their parents, to individuate, to start making their own lives. You know, when parents say to me, oh, they just want to hang out with their friends. Of course they do. Their, their friends are going to be their peers throughout their lives. Amongst the people of their age are the people they will be future working with. They will be the people that they fall in love with, they make their lives with. And of course, it's um, they want their parents to be in the background. You know, I, I sometimes say to parents, you know, you're the wallpaper on their life and they want you in the background and not too obtrusive, really. Obviously, as a psychologist, what I am trying to do is get into their minds, if you like, to understand what's going on in their mind. And sometimes that's difficult. And I sometimes say to them, what have you been thinking about the last week? Like, if we divided up the time you spent thinking about various things, what would it be? And then often, you know, that's to get hold of whatever mental health difficulties going on, that their anxiety or their eating or their weight and shape, whatever it is. And that takes up a huge part of it, often for the young people I'm seeing in clinic who are, you know, really struggling with their mental health. And then the third that's left is mostly taken up with their friends and their academic work. And then there's this teeny, teeny little sliver that's like 1%, which is about their parents. Usually about 2% for the dog, I reckon. But, you know, that's what's in their mind. Yeah. So we're just not in their mind that much, really. Um, so it's, but it's normal. Yeah, it's normal. But that's good, I guess. You wouldn't want to have to be responsible for your parents at that age. Um, can I just share something with you that I found really helpful? And, I, and it'd be lovely to hear your feedback on this too. I have a friend who was worried about her son and thought that he needed therapy and went to speak to a therapist about the fact that, you know, her son w was problematic in her company and that she didn't feel she had this connection. And the therapist said, actually, I think it's you that needs a therapy. And she said that once she realized that her son would never love her in the same way that she loved him, things felt a lot easier. And I have kept that with me, that my kids will never, ever feel that all-encompassing adoration for me that I feel for them. 
Is that something that you, I mean, I guess that that's, that's what you've just told us, isn't it? That we occupy 1% less than the dog. <laughs> less than the dog, definitely less than the dog. I, I think I realised that when I gave birth. I remember my <laughs> mum coming in to meet my firstborn and realising that she loved me in the way that I loved him. And yes. actually, that was just at the point where she stopped loving me in the same way because she started loving him more. Yes. I just, just at the point I realised how much they loved me, I lost it. So I think that is, you know, that's the perennial way. And that's what we're giving, isn't it? As a parent, we're giving our love. It's a downward relationship where generations love. Um, but I do think kids love us. They just love us in the background. Yes. Um, let's stick with that idea of generation. Um, in your book, you mentioned generational migration, which I found really fascinating. And it's the differences in the lived experiences of young people and their parents and how within one family, we all exist within these unique systems. Can you expand a bit on this, please? And can you also uh, explain the impact of that on family life and on what our daughters and sons are going through. Yeah, so in my book, I, it's quite hard to explain in words, I think, actually, Cathy, but let's have a go. So I draw it out in my book, which is that we have, um, imagine, circles within circles. And, and at the top circle, I guess, is uh, the, the society that we live in. And at the moment, the society that young people are living in is very dominated by the internet, by social media, by TikTok by different socio-political things that are going on, you know, the impact of COVID, the impact of the lockdown, that's all going to have influenced their teenage years, that sense of loss, that they didn't go to parties. Then you think about it, the next layer in would be their community. So that would be what would, you know, are they growing up in an area of affluence or an area of poverty? What's their, perhaps their experience of racism in their local community or sexism? Then the idea, the next level down would probably be school. So in the schools over the years, I've been working in, in CAMS. What I've seen certainly is this increased pressure, this increased um, emphasis on examinations, which I think has been really poor for mental health. So that's different from certainly my generation where parents didn't really take that much interest in qualifications particularly. And then the next level down would be their friends, what their friends' influences. That stayed relatively similar, I guess, apart from the interaction with the internet, their families, and then them at the centre. So there's a huge amount of pressure on young people now coming down from all those different levels, different pressures, I would say. Not more or less, but just different. So the impact there is that parents perhaps don't understand how acutely their youngsters are feeling something because they didn't experience them themselves in that way as teenagers. It's just a different experience, isn't it? I had, I'm going to name drop here for the first time ever in my life. I was interviewed on the Times Radio by Mariella Fostrup. Uh, she was pulling me up on something that had been said about the book, that parents are too interested and too over-involved in their young people's lives and was like criticising parents for that. And uh, she said, but in when my upbringing, nobody had any interest in what I did. And I left school without any qualifications. And then she sort of corrected herself. I guess it's about a balance, isn't it? It's about being in the middle. But so I guess, you know, as parents, our experience, perhaps, you know, Mariella Fostrop's experience, I'm not sure, of being parented was that our parents weren't that interested in what qualifications we got or how we did in school or that sort of thing. And then and then we want to give children different opportunities. We react against what our parenting is. And so as it's too far the other way. I was thinking about that yesterday and I just thought about it again, just as I said, about the experience of lockdown for young people and not having their social life and not having parties, hearing about Boris Johnson. How will it mean they react politically when they grow up? Will it swing back to honesty? Will they want more integrity in their politicians? This generation who are, you know, 
who are talking about this now, who are forming opinions about it now, will will it have a good impact? You know, obviously they probably feel furious about it, but, you know, uh, will it have an impact? So it's just about how these things play out, isn't it, over the generations. In each episode of Raise Her Up, we hear from a member of our GDSC family to gain their perspective on the matter at hand. This is Elizabeth Carter, who is a head of year at Sheffield Girls. We all know from our own childhoods that the challenges teenagers face are notoriously difficult. As a head of year who stays with the year group through years 9, 10 and 11, I'm in a uniquely privileged position to guide my students through these important years and support them with everything that gets thrown their way. There are definitely some very noticeable differences between the three year groups. So in year nine, there's a shift in friendships and then the GCSE options choices. In year 10, the students have to adapt to their new groups as they start their GCSE subjects fully. And then by year 11, the focus is just on everything. There's exams, there's work experience, there's relationship advice to be asked for. There's just everything. But throughout the three years, the issues that the students face vary massively how much I support them entirely relies on trust. So this relationship's built over time, but it has to be established fairly early on at the beginning of year nine. So in order to do this, I have to be visible around school. Every morning I visit all of the tutor groups, usually before their form tutors arrive, just check in with them, listen to their stories about what they've been up to, answer any questions, settle some arguments. But by building this relationship, Students come and talk to me all the time. So if there's something on their mind, they come and tell me. I literally have an open door whenever I'm in my office and it only closes for meetings or when the students want to talk privately. Issues that I deal with range from workload pressures, friendship clashes and general anxieties to more emotionally difficult ones like self-harm, disordered eating and even suicidal ideations. Whenever these issues are shared with me, one of my first suggestions is for the student to talk to their parents. I often find that students are so worried about letting their parents down or worrying them that they fester on what's happening and then things are exacerbated. As a pastoral team, we're able to guide the students to speak to their parents themselves or we can call them first to almost prepare them to talk to their child or we can call the parents with the student in the room with us. And the role that we have is to act as a liaison between parents and the student. Often this involves regular contact with parents and even other agencies as well as the student themselves. My thoughts on our role is that students can't achieve their best if they're not feeling their best. It's my job to make sure they are happy, healthy and safe. It's the motto I stick to and I tell my students all the time, I'm not there to judge, I'm there to guide. And it's the most rewarding role I think there is in school. I always say that I feel incredibly privileged to work with young people because it, it gives me enormous hope for the future. It makes me feel really optimistic, partly because this, you know, Gen Z, they are so much more politically aware at the age that they're at. So if I give you an example, some of the students I've worked with recently who take part in the GDSC Leadership and Enterprise Programme, they've had to come up with ideas for businesses and they've come up with things like anti-drink spiking devices, um, sustainable fashion. They've chosen to give their proceeds from this to um, charities like period poverty charities, rape crisis centres, food banks. In your book, you say that you've seen the opportunities and the power of teenage girls uh, increase exponentially throughout the course of your career. And and I, I would agree with that. But do you think that these young people are carrying a, a particularly heavy load 
given the ills of the of the world? It's a really interesting question, isn't it? Because when you look back, what I go back to my mother, who was born at you know the end of the Second World War, and her mother before her, you know, who grew up without electricity or water. You know, you you, you question whether it's a heavier load. But what I think it is, I think it's an equally heavy load, but it's a much more complex load. Because the opportunities, the choices, the speed of the world has increased such, it's not just um, when we look at previous generations, perhaps that they were holding a load that was harsh and difficult, but it wasn't complicated. There was one task in that load. Whereas now um, there's just masses, you know, all those things you've mentioned, all the standards that come through. I mean, I see it when I'm recruiting for for junior psychologists in my job where <laughs> where they come in with you know PowerPoint presentations and a little yeah. clicky thing and yeah. you know they're it's just <laughs> you know god how does that work <laughs> but you know I think it's just a really complicated load that that they're carrying at the moment it's heavy and it's complicated yeah so but it's interesting though because you know some things just don't change so your chapter on friendships for example I found one of the most affecting uh, parts of the book um, and you mention that, 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 you know, you say, and I'm quoting you, female friendships are one of life's hidden treasures. And I could not agree more. It's one of the most wonderful parts of being a woman that you can enjoy these, you know, unparalleled friendships, I think. But perhaps not when you're a teenage girl. So can, can you tell us a bit more about this and about your findings and about the, the overview of that chapter? Yeah, I mean, I, I found it really extraordinary because each of my chapters, I have a little quote about the topic. So I was looking for quotes about female friendship, which is a really important part of my life as a, as a grown-up woman. And there were very few, there were very few, you know, so much of the narrative about life and films and books is about romantic life. You know, I could have found 10 million on romantic life on every aspect of it, but very few about female friendship. I don't quite understand what happens with teenage friendships because they definitely are much more complicated, I think, than boys' friendships at the same age and they're very much tied into ideas about power um so there's quite a lot of research showing the difference in they go into schools they've done it in a number of different countries and in a, in a cohort like in a class or in every year they ask the kids who is liked in your class and then they ask them a different question who is popular and the two things do not overlap very much. There's a few kids in the middle who are both liked and popular. But popularity in, in high school seems very linked to ideas around social power, um, to being cool, to having money, to being attractive, to being attracting the other opposite sex. In some schools around sp sporting prowess or academic prowess, it's different in different communities. But being liked are the sort of genuine things, being kind, being compassionate, being easy to hang out with. That dynamic of power sets up lots of different dynamics in, friend, in girls' friendships, including the one concept that's been universally popular <laughs> since I've started promoting my book and talking about my book is this idea of the on-off friend. And every girl seems to recognise this. Every woman, <laughs> however old, says, oh yes, I had an on-off friend who one day is, you come into the playground and they're your, they're your best friend and they link arms with you and they whisper in your ear and then the next day they, they just completely ignore you. And so in my book, I try and explain that pattern and I try and explain that pattern from both sides, you know, what might be going on with the young person who is acting in that way to have on-off friends and how it feels to have an on-off friend. So, but I think something important gets worked out in friendships, going through that pain in the teenage years, because as I say, 
most young women emerge in their 20s and have, or even younger, I think even at sixth form age, they get really close friends and they really have each other's backs and trust each other. But there's something about going through that that they learn the, the friendship skills. Oh, yeah, it's a very bonding experience. Can I go back to the to the on-off friend? Um, you use psychological explanations to help your readers to make sense of, of what they're feeling. So in your chapter on friendships, when you talk about the anxiety that that can bring about, you remind us of the different levels of the brain and how they're triggered to respond in different situations. So for example, when you get to the playground and your on-off friend doesn't actually acknowledge you that day, what, what is happening in those layers of your brain? Can you give us an explanation? Yes. I mean, it's a, it's a model of the brain. It's not an accurate representation of the brain. I'm worried now. I'm not a, a neuroscientist at all. But in psychology, we simplify the brain to think about it having three different levels. The sort of core brain level where the automatic functioning happenings and um, a limbic system, your sort of mid layer of brain where all your emotions are held. And these two parts of the brain are the most similar to what we'd have in an animal's brain. And then you have the top level of brain where you do your thinking, your language and things like that. So I guess what might happen, I think it's quite good to think about it in terms of anxiety, actually, because when you perceive something that's anxiety provoking, like somebody ignoring you, somebody dissing you, somebody talking behind your back, you know, you can you can feel that before you can think about it. Your heart will start pounding more, you'll start sweating more. It's like an attack on you. It's the anxiety response and, you, and you'll get that. And then it, your cortical brain takes a moment to catch up and, and to think about it. But in your cortical brain, you can do a whole heap of damage to yourself. You can think about it in really unhelpful ways and you can really spiral it up. Um, so I use that in lots of different chapters of my book, I think, to um, to help people understand what's going on for themselves and to think about how to manage that because this isn't about solving all your emotional problems you know emotions are a normal part of life there will be things that happen every day that make you a little bit sad or a little bit worried but thinking about how we deal with them is is the crucial thing and hoping to reduce them to amount where it's not impacting on your day-to-day life I guess. So let's think about the impact on on day-to-day life, mental health as a general term. I was really interested to read you define mental health as our everyday psychology, because I think lots of us will see the term mental health as being synonymous with, with mental illness. What are your thoughts on this? What experiences have you had? Do you think that the, the term needs to be reclaimed? I suppose that I, working in mental health, think about mental health like physical health, that I want people to have relatively good mental health, as in with physical health, you never have perfect physical health. You know, somebody might have hay fever or um, they may get a cold or they may stub their toe. You know, you have pain. And in mental health, it's the same, you know, that mental health goes up and down. It's completely normal for your mental health to go up and down. You have periods where you don't feel so great, a couple of days maybe. What we worry about is when it's too mentally unwell or when it goes on for a long time or people can't pull themselves out of it. So, yeah, I do think it's important to think about what we can do for mental health. Not so much young women, but teenage girls particularly, you know, they often do not want to take their parents' advice about mental health. Um, So how that might sound is get off your phone, get some sleep, you need to get outside, you need to take some exercise, and they hear blah, 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 blah. Um, So I do go through some of those things in the book, um, hopefully not in a too sort of lectury tone, but just to explain why parents are saying that and what, what the evidence is, and to think about when you have those downs, how you deal with them in a more constructive 
constructive way um, and why you might feel like dealing with them in an unconstructive way. So a last question for you, a number of last questions, in fact. So the, the, the book is aimed at girls. We will have girls listening, but we will also predominantly have parents and carers listening. Do you have any words of wisdom for parents wanting desperately to connect with their daughters, but who at times just seem so, so hard to reach? How can parents get your words of wisdom out to their daughters? Obviously, to buy the book. And I would say to everybody listening, buy the book because it's fantastic. Do they buy the book and leave it somewhere so it's not tainted by the fact that they've bought it? <laughs> I think they probably must. They must do. Well, hopefully, we'll have it in GDST libraries, Cathy. Oh, we will and across it... <laughs> across GDST schools. Yes. Um, so we can they can find it in that way. I mean, I'm, gosh, I would really love like a some teenage influencer to promote the book or something like that. I'm longing for that to happen because I think that's why I really want to get the information out there. And how do we do it? We, I think we might have to get the cool aunt to buy the book for them and say, "Oh, look, this is a really great book." Um, but if I had kind of one bit of wisdom for parents, I guess what I would say is the thing I do in therapy is I listen. You know, I don't judge. I mean, sometimes I give them advice about what to do, but, you know, from understanding, a deep understanding of their position. So what I hear a lot or what I'm reminded a lot is that book, um, that came out as popular self-help book about probably about 20 years ago men are from mars and women are from venus and i don't know if you remember that book but the hypothesis in the book was that women wanted men to listen to their problems and not to solve their problems and men wanted to jump in and solve their problems and what i see a lot with parents is that they want to jump in and solve their problems they want to share that wisdom they've got they've lived through something similar and they think they know and kids don't want that particularly at the older age, the teenage years, they don't want that. They want you to listen and understand. So it's so hard as a parent to to not to jump to conclusions. And believe me, I know that as a parent, particularly when I talk to lots of young people. So I think oh, I've got lots of advice to give. But you don't, you can't give advice. You have to hold back. They want you to listen. They want you to understand. So that would be my one bit of advice to parents. Yeah. So listen, understand, and empathize. Don't listen and solve. Exactly. Less is more. You say it best when you say nothing at all. There you go. Ronan Keaton for you. <laughs> well, what a fantastic note on which to leave this. Thank you so much for your invaluable insight. I have enjoyed this conversation so much. I'm sure that people listening will too. You Don't Understand Me, A Young Woman's Guide to Life by Dr. Tara Porter is out now and I strongly recommend that you all buy it. Thank you, Tara. Thank you, Cathy. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Raise Her Up from the GDST. To hear all the experts we have on this series and to make sure you don't miss one, please subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon, Google or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, if you could leave a review and a five-star rating, it'll help other parents and carers to find the podcast so they can listen and learn too. I'm Cathy Walker. Join me on the next episode of Raise Her Up when we'll be joined by Professor Dame Leslie Regan giving us the lowdown on periods. I do think that the key to all this is, is education. So, you know, there's a marvellous quote by that fabulous man, Sir Michael Marmot. He says, if there was a single intervention that I could impose to improve health, it would be education. And in a global context, the education of women, because when you educate women, everybody benefits from it. I'll see you then.